This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. Elevating more women into leadership positions is one of the keys to creating a more gender equal world, especially in sectors like financial services and technology. My next guest is a woman who has spent decades at the top of her field in key leadership positions, bringing lasting change to sectors that have traditionally been led by men. I'm Kate Mills, the host of Women's Gender's podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I'm joined by Gail Pemberton, a highly experienced C-suite executive, non-executive director, and widely respected order of Australia recipient. She shares her tips for women wanting to pursue leadership at work and tangible ways organisations can encourage more women to future-proof their careers by pursuing jobs in the technology sector. So Gail, it's really fantastic that you're here. you very high-profile career, but of course you started in sort of banking and technology. So, so take me back there, if you like. Was working in banking and technology, was it what you always wanted to do? And how did you find those first few years in what is typically a very male-dominated industry? Well, I think I, um, I initially decided I wanted to work in technology and rather than necessarily financial services. And I, I um, started working for an insurance company, which was a British insurance company, exceptionally dull, <laughs> Sun, Alliance, Sun Alliance Insurance. And um, so I had decided in high school, going through the careers development thing, to, um, to, to that the advice I was getting wasn't very helpful. So I did my own research on careers and I, you know, discovered the whole area of information technology and thought it was quite exciting. And I noticed that it was equal pay for women. And I, I guess... I just thought it was very futuristic and it was sort of something that I'd like to be a part of and it probably plays to many of my career choices in my career that I like to go for an organisation that's outside the pack. Mm. Can I ask you there just on something you said? So you said the careers advice you got was not very helpful and so you did your own research. What do you mean? What was your experience of that careers advice? Oh, it was very, uh, very gendered and very sort of stereotyped, you know, for, for women. Basically, in my era, you became a public servant, you became a secretary, you became a teacher, or you became a nurse, or possibly an accountant, but that was kind of edgy. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed, I enrolled in an accounting course at university, but I chose that course because it had technology subjects in it. I thought I would venture out and do my own research and sort of see if I could find different options. And my HSC results came through and they were very good. And they sort of said, what would I, what, what did I want to do? And I said, I want to be a computer programmer. <laughs> and they said, oh, well, we do offer traineeships in computer programming. Would you be prepared to sit for the aptitude test? So I sat for the aptitude test, which was, they don't have it anymore, but in those days it was the IBM programming aptitude test, which was the entry point for pretty much everyone in the industry. And and I blitzed it. <laughs> and I blitzed it so much that they made me sit it again because I think they thought I'd cheated. <laughs> and so they said, right, okay, um, would you like to accept a, a job as a trainee programmer? So I like to think of that as an example where, um, you know, some advice I give to women is do what guys do and think about where do you want your career to go and then put your hand up. It's a motto that I have throughout my career and that's an example where 
I was in a job as a computer programmer before any of my contemporaries were, and um, and I was an arts, mainly an arts graduate, not a maths and science graduate. And I was told in those days that, you know, you really needed to be a maths and science major. Um, I mean, I did well in maths and science, but it wasn't my kind of major. Mm. Do you think that brought you a different perspective, you know, going into computer programming with an arts background rather than a sort of more traditional, if you like, maths and science background? Well, it's interesting. I was sitting across um, from a former Macquarie colleague last night at a board table and we would, she was describing uh, her experiences of IT people, what she in brackets called IT people or tech people. And, and it wasn't particularly complimentary. And I said, remember, I won't say her name, uh, I say, remember, um, I was one of those. And she did say to me, but Gail, you are very different. Mm. <laughs> um, so I did get that sort of feedback. The dominant part of my career was technology. I did get feedback that I was not a typical techno- mm. technology person. And maybe that is because of my, my background. Mm. So you really blazed a trail in terms of your position, you know, the career that you've had in tech, both in technology and in financial services. And like I said, both typically considered quite male-dominated areas, although that is changing. Mm. Do you see that as very different now? Do you think that women that entered now would have a similar experiences to the experiences that you had? Look, I think generally the world has moved on and things are, are better. You know, I certainly remember um, events where the females weren't invited, like drinks in the boardroom. All the males were invited and the women were not. And, and I do distinctly remember I, uh, I had my first boss at Sun Alliance was quite a progressive guy and I think that also really influenced my career as well. And, uh, and he had quite a strong uh, wife with a career and obviously that makes a difference. And I remember that the um, these... Um, you know, fusty UK executives came out to Australia and they said to my boss, they said, um, don't you think you ought to tell her um, that she should be wearing a skirt? Um, you know, because I was wearing trousers. And he said, he said, well, you can tell her, but I never would. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's definitely the influence. Well, it sounds like a good guy, but also that influence of having a working partner. Yeah. Anyway, so yes, I experienced, I did get lots of opportunity. I think if you, uh, you know, I I would tend to shrug those things aside because I had belief in myself when I came from, I think I came from a family where, where there was a long line of women who had their own businesses or careers. And, and so I always believed that I had a right to have a seat at the table. And I think, so I was able to brush these things aside and um, but but others, you know, uh, not everybody is is sort of like that. That's and that doesn't mean it w- wasn't difficult at times. But I guess I tended to focus more on the opportunities I was being offered rather than maybe some of the discrimination. Mm. As I've said, you know, you had a really, you've had and are having a fantastic career, I should say, but you also uh, received the Order of Australia in 2018. So tell me a little bit about that. What was that like and what does it mean to you? Um, it meant a lot to me um, because uh, what was it like? It was wonderful. <laughs> it, it's wonderful to receive. People trivialise or criticise these sort of awards, but 
It was wonderful to be recognised for my very early roles in in information technology where really there were, I mean, in terms of when I was CIO of Macquarie, you know, initially I, I, I didn't know anyone, any other females who are in that sort of senior leadership role, no one. Later on, I, you know, there was a, a woman, I think, who was actually the CIO at the ABC who I met, obviously a very different environment, and then Michelle Tredenick, um, who you may or may not have heard of, Michelle Tredenick. Um, this is, but this is quite a lot later than I was CIO at Macquarie. So, so I didn't really have any industry peers. So I think to be recognised for that and to be recognised for speaking up for uh, technology, the importance of technology in organisations, that, that to me was important and I think it's encouraging to other women. Yeah, I mean, that experience you have uh, chimes to a certain extent. So I was editor at BRW magazine and I remember going into a room where they had all the sort of senior editors at Fairfax and I was the only woman in that room. Oh, no, there there was another woman in that room, I tell a lie. And I remember at that moment looking around the room and realising what just gender disparity actually was because often I think you don't see it when you're racing up in your own career, if that makes sense. But sometimes there's that moment where it is clarified did you have that experience, you know, when you were CIO at Macquarie Bank, like I said, being the only woman in the room? Look, I think Macquarie definitely has, you know, an element of all investment banking has, a, you know, quite a, a sort of an alpha masculine sort of culture. Having said that, Alan Moss was not like that and I reported to Alan Moss, but it was also a performance culture. So, and there were all sorts of different Quirky personalities were tolerated at Macquarie as long as, you know, they performed. And diversity, so so it's not to say that there weren't challenges, and, and there were some, but in the main um, it was a performance culture and a growth culture. And I always think if people, I tell people, if you're looking for opportunities, look for growth companies because growth companies don't have time to discriminate. They are hungry to hire people. And they have to be gender neutral in the main, you know. So pick a growth company and your experiences, whether you're an LGBTIQ person or whether you're, you know, a a female in a male-dominated culture, your experience will be better in a growth company. But uh, look, yeah, I mean, I had, I'll tell you one funny story. I went over to Imaday in Switzerland. Um, Macquarie sent me to do, um, it was like a mini MBA I arrived and I arrived in Lausanne quite late and I got there, the orientation session, they said it had just finished, why don't you go up to your, your rooms, your, um, you know, your working group room. So I went up to the working group room and, and I was standing there waiting to meet my fellow teammates and uh, one chap came in and he said, oh, he said, hello. He said, are you showing us the room?" And so, yeah, he thought I was the hired help because I was female. And I was actually more senior in, in terms of my career than pretty much anyone on that, that course in Switzerland. And I was the only female in the entire program. Wow. Did the people running the program note that? Like, you know what I mean? Do you think it made them reflect? Look, this was Switzerland. This is an era when pe- men went home for a cooked lunch. Mm. <laughs> no. <laughs> 
So Gail, you've had and are having a, a very significant non-executive director career. You've been on lots of boards, including QIC, Sydney Opera House, One View, and you're currently the chair of Prosper and you're the non-executive director at Eclipse Group and MNF, and as well as a director at Sydney Metro and Land Services WA. I'm looking at that thinking, how do you fit it all in? Um, but tell me what we, I think we've come a, a reasonable way in terms of female representation on boards. What kind of difference do you think it has made to corporate Australia? Well, I might just use my, the board that I've most recently joined, which is um, MNF Group. I'm the first female non-executive director, and I know that the organisation is quite proud of having taken that first step. It's an initial step, but from that first step, many other steps will follow. And um, I'd just like to call out the um, co-founder of MNF Group, Renee Sugo, who's also the managing director, because he chose to champion the change for diversity on the board. And I know that that's actually been quite impactful, with particularly with the females in his organisation. But look, on a broader note, um, my experience is having diversity in the boardroom leads to better and more effective conversations. The sort of areas that I think having diversity on the board has opened up dialogue at the board table is around topics like technology and driving um, digitization of the organisation, how a company treats its customers, how it relates to its customers, in what regard customers actually hold the corporation. And it, it's also brought, I think, a greater awareness and importance and understanding of engagement, staff engagement to the board table. And, and that big issue of culture, what is an organisation's culture and is it a good culture? These are the things that I think where diversity has really accelerated the introduction of those topics onto the board agenda. Mm. We're at a moment now in Australia where gender uh, and the conversations around gender is essentially front page news for a whole variety of issues, particularly what you see coming out of Canberra. Um, what's your view? I mean, you, you talked about you know the boardroom where I think we can agree we have made a reasonable if not significant progress but when you step back and you look at the broader view of Australia and gender and how women can perform within Australia what's your view there? Well I think the improvement at the board table has not been um, matched by improvement in senior management in many organisations you know there are some that you know um, particularly the big banks you actually have to give them credit They've got good diversity in their leadership teams, but many, many ASX 200, ASX 300 companies do not have that diversity in their management teams. And that is the challenge because, you know, we need we need those women coming up in the senior executive ranks to be filling chief executive roles and to be going, um, you know, to be then, you know, potentially, you know, channeling into um, board roles as well. So, so, so how come we've managed it at board level, but it hasn't translated? I, I think because the, I think the reason we've managed it at board level is we've had activism from, a num from, um, industry funds, from funds management companies generally, from the AICD, and from the ASX. 
So, so I think um, there's been, you know, quite a lot of activism at those levels, which is terrific. And I think it's much harder to, to I guess, it's in, in a way it's easier to, to have activism and to drive change at board level um, because you've got, it's, it's, a, it's now um, a mantra of investors and, it, you know, effectively they, they call the shots, they vote directors and boards on or off. And if you don't now, if you don't meet those, some of those diversity targets. So, but you, that doesn't, you don't, you don't have any similar mechanism for um, the, the the wide universe of of corporate organisations, so so it, the tone you know um, the tone has to start at the top. It needs to go from the board, but in particular the CEO needs to needs to drive um, a diversity agenda and and you know be really passionate about it and and proactive uh, about it. Mm. But those same organisations, the funds managers, for example, I mean, they could demand that data, couldn't they? I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, which is, you know, I think I'd say, look, in the end, boards are visible, you know, because it's nine, ten people. So it's really easy to look at a board and say, well, there's, there's not enough women, there's not enough, you know, um, cultural diversity, etc. It's much harder when you look across, say, a thousand person organisation. You, you can't see it as quickly. But those, those same organisations, those fund managers, I mean, they could push for organisations to show that data and to have it right up at the front, couldn't they? They could, they could, but they don't actually have the capacity to vote. They don't, as you you would know, uh, it's you don't. They don't have the capacity to actually directly influence other than ask for the data. Whereas they can actually vote directors in or out. They 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 can't they can't vote a managing director out. They could, as we saw with AMP, investors did. Um, use the sort of the cudgel of um, voting for directors and their remuneration report to, um, to to force change on, for example, companies you know like AMP. Um, so they can, but it's a lot harder, and it it it, it tends to be when things have come to a head rather than uh, when, when very serious matters have come to a head rather than at, say, a, a, just because of, you know, sort of diversity statistics not meeting a particular target. You need to have an incident for them to, or several incidents for them to take such action because it's typically, and they have they do have a bit of a conflict of interest because taking that action usually will um, depress the share price. <laughs> so, look, I think it's uh, uh, it, there's no easy answer, no easy answer to it. Mm. Um, well, like uh, like a lot of things, I'm saying that we live in sort of strange and interesting times, both around gender and how, how the action that's going on around that, but also, of course, with regards to the events of the last 12 to 18 months. So how did the pandemic impact on you? And I'm thinking about with you personally, but your work, but also what you saw in terms of customers and employees in the organisations you're involved with. Um, I, what, what I saw for, for me, um, you know, as a director, I would, um, I think there was a preference for pretty much for all board meetings and committee meetings to be in person. And that's changed a lot now. Um, but I would take as chair, I would take, you know, many meetings, um, outside of the boardroom. I would take many meetings, um, at home 
as many at home as in the office. Um, so my life, in short, I'm saying my life didn't change that much, but I was doing, you know, I, I missed, I think one does, you miss contact with people. And things um, like I, yesterday, for example, last night we had a, um, uh, a workshop on a, a three-year business plan around the board table. And those sorts of discussions are very difficult to do by Zoom or Teams, you know. Um, so there are some, when, when you need to collaborate and work together on a problem or a project, it's much harder to do remotely. And so, but I think we were very lucky that in Sydney, um, you know, we, we actually sort of got back to face-to-face much sooner than the other states. So I think most companies perform very well. I think most employees perform very well. Um, I'm not aware in the companies that I'm associated with um, um, customer intimacy suffering because customers were in the same position themselves. But what I have seen is post-COVID, um, there are productivity issues um, because there, there, uh, I think there is a reluctance uh, on the part of um, some employees to return to the office, even part-time. And, and there's sort of like a power shift. It's their choice as to whether they come back into the office or not. Which, you know, I think if you're a technologist or you're an engineer, it it may be the new normal. Um, But I think if you're a BDM, um, you know, a salesperson, uh, you you need to actually be with your team. You You need to spend, you need to go back and spend time in the office. So I think sales productivity um has i've observed some um reduction in salesforce productivity and people until people were encouraged to go back to the office uh, yeah absolutely i mean i think it fits into that discussion around for some people working at home will work both for them in terms of their personality but also in terms of what they actually do and then for other people it's more face to face and I, I think the debate is around how will that impact on your career, you know, and your exactly. social life? You know, yeah. if, if you're the home person or if you're the in the CBD person, you end up having sort of two tiers, I think, in, in your workforce. Yes, I, I, think, um, I think that it will definitely impact negatively on people's careers if they choose to work from home full time. Because there's just a human tendency to um, to look to promote to the people who you spend time with. Uh, Gail, I saw a speaker a few years ago who talked about volatility. And what he said always stayed with me. He said, actually, the world has always been volatile. But we've had this, the, the, he was talking around the um, financial crisis time. He said, the world has actually always been volatile. But you've had this period really from the end of World War II until now of in- incredible instability. Whereas he said, if you went back in the past, I mean, you could live in Europe and, you know, the lines were constantly redrawn overnight as to which country or which state you were in, and that we should get used to volatility being the norm. Do you agree with that? And if so, how do we prepare ourselves, you know, having coming out of a period of unprecedented volatility to go back into a period of never-ending volatility, potentially? (laughs) Um, I find that a difficult question to answer because, when I reflect back at the main part of my executive career um, working at Macquarie Bank, it was such a high growth company 
And the demands were so great and incessant that I got used to living with volatility. So I didn't have a, like a stable job where everything was the same. So I ne- I've never really had that. So I, I think get used to it. <laughs> I, I often sort of say, you know, sort of learning to deal with ambiguity and learning to deal with change you know, are are very valuable skills and help one be agile and, you know, and be um, able to make decisions on the fly if you need to, and you often do. So I agree, it's the new normal. And I think people's lives were, you know, if I look at, say, my parents, I think their lives were much more the same week in, week out, year in, year out, with sort of some major events every few years. And maybe there are still jobs like that. But I I tend to think a lot of people have to deal with um, volatility and change. It's just the new normal. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed the episode. This episode was produced by the ever-excellent Alison Ho. If you enjoyed the episode, then make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast player and please leave us a rating. To hear more from us, visit womensagenda.com.au and I'm looking forward to hosting you in the next episode. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.